I invite you to turn with me to Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2, we're going to be covering verses 1 to 5 today. And just uh, to set that up, again, just a reminder that at the end of chapter 1, Paul began writing about his relationship to the Jerusalem church and to the apostles there. And this was all part of his defense of his apostleship and of the gospel that he proclaimed. Uh, The Judaizers, of course, were attacking Paul's message, the gospel he was preaching. They were denying that. And they were also attacking his authority, his apostleship itself. And so Paul is responding to this. And he said that after receiving his revelation directly from Christ Jesus, he didn't go immediately to Jerusalem to consult with flesh and blood, with other men or with the apostles. Rather, he went into Arabia and then he eventually ends up back at Damascus. And then he says after three years, though, he did end up going down to Jerusalem and he met with Peter and with James, though this was evidently a quiet visit because he tells us that the churches in Judea at this point in the story, at least in Paul's story, uh, at, at this point, they had not known him personally yet. They had simply heard that this man who used to be this violent persecutor of the church uh, was now turned and was now preaching the faith that he once had tried to destroy. And so now as we get to chapter 2, Paul continues, and I want to read up to verse 10, and then we'll look at verses 1 to 5. So Galatians 2, verse 1, Paul continues, says, Then after 14 years... I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery. To them, we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised, worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. In our civil realm today, uh, freedom is a word that we hear a lot. Uh, Personal freedom is something that I think is is greatly underappreciated. And for all the talk that I heard growing up of remembering and not forgetting uh, those who fought to preserve the freedoms that we've enjoyed and so on. I think it's fairly safe to say that we have taken it for granted and such that now uh, many people think that personal freedom is an evil thing. Uh, Hashtags like free dumb, D-U-M-B. I've seen that trend a number of times on Twitter the last few months, or or at least maybe that was Twitter just trying to convince me. It was, uh, I don't know. But, um, But I think it is something that is not well uh, understood or appreciated. And I personally have found this to be very grievous, as I don't think that this is good for society. I think it's good and right for citizens of this country to stand up for personal freedom. However, there is a different type of freedom that is far more significant than this. And it's even more worthy of our defense. In fact, it's a necessity that we would stand up and defend this. When this freedom is attacked or corrupted, when it's taken away, the results are far more devastating 
and far more far-reaching. In fact, it's not a stretch to say they are eternal, the consequences. And speaking, of course, of the spiritual freedom that there is in Christ Jesus. The gospel message is a message of freedom, the truest of freedom. The Bible speaks of it this way in a number of places. Galatians is one of those books in which we find the word freedom come up a number of times. It has a lot to say about it, including in our text today. Paul mentions Christian freedom in verse 5 and how it was that he was forced to defend it. At the end of the day, what the Judaizers were proclaiming, their false gospel, their gospel that was really no gospel at all, was a form of spiritual slavery that brought with it devastating consequences. And this is precisely what happens when sola gratia and sola fide are corrupted. It robs the Christian of our freedom and it enslaves us once more. So Paul reveals here that the gospel is a message of true freedom and it is to be zealously guarded. As a church, we must believe and then proclaim and defend the freedom that comes with the gospel. And so I want to begin. The first point of the sermon is nothing new or terribly creative at all, but it continues to be vital It is that the good news is that sinners are justified by grace alone through faith alone. This is the key to the book of Galatians. It continues to be key to Paul's argument. So we're going to look at this and then then we will look at how this relates to freedom. Why it is that this is a message of freedom and to be defended as such. So you might wonder, just in having read through these verses where exactly it talks about justification by, by faith alone. So uh, let's, let's get into this. Verse 1 again. It says, Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately, before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaimed among the Gentiles, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. So Paul said after three years after his revelation on the Damascus road of the Lord Jesus Christ, he went to, to, to Jerusalem and met quietly. And then, and then he returned and he says, but after another 14 years had passed, presumably since he was last in Jerusalem, he returned once again. This time he was, he was with Barnabas. Barnabas was his ministry partner at this time. And he says here that they took Titus along with them. And I I mentioned last week that piecing together a a timeline of Paul's life can be a little bit tricky when you compare what he says here and in 1 Corinthians even and and in Acts. It can be a little bit tricky. Um, Some people think that this visit that he's talking about here in chapter 2 is the Jerusalem council that we read about in Acts chapter 15. Uh, That is very possible. Uh, If that's the case, then what... uh, Paul is describing for us here in Acts 2 is a little bit of additional information to what went on when Paul visited Jerusalem um, for that council. Certainly, we read in Acts 15, the Jerusalem council was concerned about this very issue, this issue of, of circumcision and these people saying you have to be circumcised in order to be saved. You can read about that in Acts 15. I'm not entirely convinced that this is describing uh, the Acts 15 visit. I I lean towards the view that this was an earlier visit to Jerusalem, possibly the famine relief visit that we can read about in Acts chapter 11 and 12, Um, perhaps even another time that Acts doesn't even address. Um, But regardless, uh, Paul says here he went up because of a revelation or according to a revelation. So when Paul went on this trip to Jerusalem that he's describing here, he went not because he was summoned by mere mortals, as one commentator says, to give an account for himself and that that under their authority or whatever. No, he went because of a revelation, because God had revealed to him that he should go. When we read Acts 15, he was sent in Acts 15 uh, as a a, uh, by by churches to uh, the church in Antioch to Jerusalem. Um, But on this particular visit, he says that he was 
Uh, he went up because of a revelation. It says he went to set before them his gospel. He calls them, those who seemed influential. And we see later in verse 9 that he's talking primarily about Peter, Cephas, James, that's the Lord's brother, and the apostle John. And this meeting, he tells us here, was, again, a private conversation in which he laid out his gospel before these men to see if he had been running these 17 years in vain. Now, it might seem like Paul is maybe doubting here, like he had this season of doubt where he's not really sure about his message, and maybe I have been doing this wrong the whole time. Um, But I don't think that's what he's saying. I think in light of his argument that he's already made, that he got his message directly from Christ himself, and that that's his ultimate authority, Paul was quite confident of the gospel that he proclaimed. So I don't think he suddenly was struck with this, maybe I've got it all wrong. Rather, I think it makes more sense to say that his concern was that his years of labor might be undermined by this false gospel that was coming out of Jerusalem at this point. These Judaizers, they're claiming, as we have said and as we have seen, a close tie to Jerusalem. They're more authentic and legitimate and a a better authority than Paul, who's not even really that connected with Jerusalem. And Paul is concerned. If this is what is now coming out of Jerusalem, if this is in fact what even John or James or Peter is preaching, then he would see that his ministry would indeed be in danger. This would be troubling and would provide a tremendous difficulty in his efforts to preach Christ and preach the gospel. So his ministry is in danger if Jerusalem was preaching a different gospel now. And so he goes up to, to get this straight with them. And the specifics of their conversation are implied with what we read in verse 3. In verse 3 he says, But even Titus who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. He he gives us here the outcome of this meeting. So he meets with these influential men, as he calls them, Peter, James, and John, and he gives us the outcome of the conversation. After meeting and after discussing the contents of the gospel and how it is that somebody's saved, he says that coming out of this, Titus, not even Titus, was compelled to, or forced into circumcision. Titus was a Greek. It was known evidently that he was a Greek. Therefore, he would not have been circumcised. He was a convert to Christianity. And so if, so he's saying Titus wasn't even forced out of this meeting to be circumcised. And so what does this tell us? Well, it tells us that there was agreement between Paul and the other apostles that one need not be circumcised in order to be saved. To put it another way, they agreed that one is justified by God's grace through faith alone, not of any works whatsoever, including circumcision. That's what's evidence of this. We went, hashed out the gospel, and Titus was never compelled to be circumcised. So as it turns out, the Judaizers, their message was not, in fact, from the Jerusalem apostles. Even if they claimed to be so, Paul is giving this as proof and evidence to the contrary. Paul's message was the same as Peter's message. And we'll see more about this unity between Paul and the Jerusalem church next time, which will be uh, on the 1st in two weeks, on January 1st, uh, when Marshall preaches through uh, verses 6 to 10. Verse 3 here is the first time in Galatians that we see the issue that was in Galatia clearly as being that of circumcision. We've been talking about this so far as we've worked through chapter 1, but this is the first time in the letter where circumcision is explicitly named. And if you're wondering how circumcision could ever occupy this place, And become this point of dispute and debate like this to where it warrants such a letter like Paul to where people are becoming convinced maybe of its necessity. I just want to try to quickly explain this a little bit. And hopefully, well, because I think what can happen is we can 
see this is a dispute about circumcision and it seems so foreign to us because no, I don't know of anybody today who is demanding circumcision in order to be saved. And so we just think, well, okay, this is easy then. The answer is no, you don't have to. And on we go with life. But I think the, the better we can try to understand the issue and what's underneath even this issue of circumcision, the better we can understand it, the better we will be prepared so that we can see when this same sort of thing happens today or in days to come, when the same sort of error starts to creep in and we are forced, as Paul does in Galatians, to take a stand. And so hopefully over coming weeks as we continue through this book, uh, we, we, will, we will gain just greater clarity on these matters. So just a few things regarding circumcision. Of course, it was given to Abraham in Genesis chapter 17. It was part of the Abrahamic covenant as God brought further additions to that in, in, in Genesis chapter 17. All of Abraham's male descendants were to be circumcised on the eighth day. It was the sign of the covenant. It was uh, when, 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 when fast forward, when, when Israel is at Sinai, it was part of the Sinaitic covenant as well. All male descendants of Abraham were to be uh, circumcised at eight days old. It's what marked you out as an offspring of Abraham. If you didn't get circumcision, in fact, then you were to be cut off from the people. That's what Genesis 17, 14 says. God says that. Uh, if you don't do this, you're to be cut off from your people, which, which, would, which means death. You were to die. You were to be cut off. That's how serious the matter was. So this is why there's that strange episode where Moses has the burning bush. That's not the, well, I guess that's a little strange, but uh, that's not the strange episode I'm talking about. But he has this burning bush. He's called to go back and lead the people of Israel out. And God himself speaks to him and through this bush. And wow. And then he starts to go. And all of a sudden, God's maybe going to put him to death. And, and his wife intervenes. And what does she do? Circumcises their boys because they weren't circumcised. This is an important matter, offspring of Abraham. And so this, they're to be cut off if they don't do this. This was such a, an identifying mark for the people of Israel. If you remember the episode of David and Goliath, that story when, when Goliath is taunting the Israel, uh, Israel's army and David shows up and, and he hears this and his response is, who is this uncircumcised Philistine? that would defy the armies of the living God. He's not even part of this covenant people. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine? It was among the most notable things that separated Israel from other nations. And it was obviously, evidently, a very serious matter. It was not wrong to say that a male descendant of Abraham and a Someone in this covenant people had to be circumcised. It's not like this was just an optional thing. You take it or leave it. And so the Judaizers, first century comes along, Christ. They say you need to believe in Christ. But they think as they are emphasizing circumcision that they are standing on firm ground. Saying you need to be circumcised in order to be saved. Jesus, after all, is a Jewish Messiah. And if you want in on this, if you want his salvation, this blessing, then you must join us, which means you need to be circumcised if you're a man. This is the way it's always been since Abraham. However, they clearly had a, a very fundamental misunderstanding of their scriptures, of the Old Testament even. They misunderstood the purpose of the Mosaic Covenant. They misunderstood the purpose of the law. They misunderstood the purpose of circumcision. The Mosaic Covenant was always something that was meant to be temporary. In the New Testament, of course, it's referred to as the Old Covenant. And I would argue that captures the Abrahamic Covenant as well as part of that. This covenant, the Mosaic covenant, was always meant to be temporary. Paul is going to make that very, very clear in chapter 3 of Galatians. True Israelites were not those who were simply physically circumcised in the flesh, 
but were those who had their hearts circumcised and made new. They were those who believed God. They were those who trusted in his promises and specifically in his promise to send a Messiah that would overcome the problem of sin. This offspring of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. This would be the blessing that would go to all nations through the offspring of Abraham. This is what Paul himself tells us in Romans chapter 2. He says in verse 28, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. So the Mosaic Covenant had its own ceremonial laws that were important in and of themselves for Israel as a nation under that covenant with God. And they governed external matters. They governed national life in the land of Canaan. But justification, eternal salvation, was never attained by works of the law. It was not... Abraham was not justified by works, nor was anyone in the Old Testament justified by works. This was never the point of the law. Circumcision, important as it was, was never a means by which Jews or anybody received salvation. Paul, again, makes this very clear in chapter 3 when he will argue that Abraham was justified before circumcision was even given. Prior to Genesis 17, it says that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. This was before circumcision was even a thing. So circumcision cannot be a means of justification because Abraham was justified prior. Moreover, as he will argue, the Mosaic law came 430 years after Abraham. And so how can we argue that this law is a means by which a man needs to be justified and declared righteous before God, when obviously it was not the means by which Abraham was justified before God, since it didn't even, the Mosaic law didn't even exist when Abraham was counted righteous. As we'll see, Paul makes clear that the Mosaic law was always meant to be temporary until such time as the Messiah had come. It functioned somewhat like scaffolding. If you think of scaffolding, you put up scaffolding in order to help you complete the building. And once the building is complete, you then tear down the scaffolding and behold, there's the building. That's something of the way the old covenant was meant to function. Once Christ comes, once the Messiah comes, then that old covenant is meant to fall away. And now as Paul writes this letter to the Galatians, the Messiah had come. The one to whom that Old Testament had been pointing had arrived. And the blessing that he brings has come. This blessing of Abraham is going out to the Gentiles. What is this blessing? This blessing is full and free forgiveness of sins to all peoples, not just to the Jews, but to all people, to all nations, this blessing goes. And it is a blessing that is received, how? It is received by faith. It is received by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, period. So to insist on circumcision as a condition by which we are justified is a complete misunderstanding of the Scriptures. It's a complete misunderstanding of the Old Testament, let alone of the New. In the New Testament, in the New Covenant, it is very clear that sinners enter into this covenant with God not by being physically born or physically circumcised into Israel, but rather by being spiritually born again or being born from above. This is what Jesus told Nicodemus in John chapter 3. And, and if you notice the way he talks to Nicodemus as well, this wasn't just a brand new concept that suddenly Jesus is dropping on everybody. Well, you used to be justified by the law and, and, and it was all about external circumcision, but now it's really about this internal matter. He chastises Nicodemus. 
Are you not the teacher in Israel and yet you do not know these things? He's he's suggesting there, he's saying that Nicodemus ought to have understood these things from the Old Testament. Physical circumcision does not perform the necessary work that is needed in a sinner to have our hearts remade before God. In fact, it was always pointing the external act of circumcision, always pointing to the necessity of having a heart circumcised and set apart to God. We find that even in, within Deuteronomy, that it is pointing to that. We've talked a little bit about that when we were in, in, Deuter- in our time in Deuteronomy. And so it is wildly misplaced to make circumcision somebody's hope of salvation. Or to suggest that salvation is incomplete until such act is performed. So again, Paul is telling us, telling his readers, not even Titus was compelled to be circumcised. This proves that it was never demanded as being a necessary instrument or tool by which man is to be saved. Rather, Justification by God's grace alone, through faith alone, is what was agreed upon between Paul, Peter, James, and John. This is how it works. The Judaizers are wrong, and they've always been wrong. Justification is an act by God, an act of God, whereby sinners are counted righteous, declared righteous. This involves having our sins forgiven and Christ's righteousness credited to our account. Our debt pardoned, wiped clean, and our bank account filled with the righteousness of Christ. It is a change in status before God. Sinner to righteous, being declared righteous on the merits of Christ. And is received by faith alone. This is foundational to salvation. If a person is justified, then that person is saved. Obedience to any law cannot bring this about. Law is the wrong tool for the job. This is an act of God's free grace, again, received by sinners by faith alone. So that brings us to this matter of freedom Justification by faith alone is a message of true freedom. God justifies sinners, again, as a gift of his grace. His spirit awakens sinners and enables faith by which sinners receive salvation. Faith is receiving and resting in Christ. It's what saving faith is. And so we do not put other obstacles in the way for sinners. We do not tell sinners... You must overcome all of your sin first in order to come to Christ, in order to be saved. We don't tell sinners you've got to do and perform all of these acts in order to be saved by the Lord. We say, do you feel the weight of your sinfulness before God? Do you you understand your plight and your ruin before God who is holy? That your transgressions of his law in every way in which you have transgressed his law leaves you condemned before him, that you are deserving of his wrath. Do you understand that if you were to die and stand before him, you would be under his judgment and that it is perfect and it is severe? If you understand this, confess that, acknowledge that before God, and then receive forgiveness that is full and free from Almighty God by believing in his Son who died and rose again to save wretched, pitiable sinners such as yourself, such as all of us, such as me, who are utterly helpless to do anything about our condition. We, we sang about, if you tarry until you're better, you'll never come at all. We don't wait. You just con- confess to God. There is a great truth 
to the idea that we come to God just as I am to receive that forgiveness. It's abused today by some who want to use that as a way of just dismissing all sin. But it is true that we come to God with our sin, we confess that to him, and we look to the Son. We believe in him. There's a liberty in this. We don't preach that you have to repent to a certain degree, and only once you've reached a certain point, then you can have a measure of confidence that you belong to God. You don't have to master everything in order to be forgiven, in order to be reconciled to God. The good news is that we proclaim to sinners, you come and you pour that out before God and confess it to him and just look to the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe in him. He is your hope. He is your righteousness. This is good news. And this brings God all the glory. Because we, we have done nothing in ourselves. Just believe, just looking to Christ. In chapter 3, verse 26, Paul will say that you are sons of God through faith. That is, you have the full rights of sonship. Not because you've done so much, not because you got circumcised, not because you got baptized, not because of whatever, but through faith. This means that your status cannot be improved. Sonship is the highest rank in the father's household. You are co-heirs with Christ through faith. You're going to inherit the world to come through faith. Not because you cleaned up your, your act so much. Even since the time you first believed. But simply through faith. The moment you believe, you're a son of God. Every believer on account of faith, being united to Christ, the true son, have the status of son. And so there's no distinction between you and between me and between any other believer for this reason. We're all sons of God. We're all set to inherit with Christ our elder brother, as he is called. It does not matter where you're from. It does not matter what your language you speak. It doesn't matter what kind of background you had, what your life was like prior to believing in Christ. If you are in Christ simply by believing in him, you are a son of almighty God. There's nothing to add to it. There's nothing to improve upon this. Inheritance of a firstborn son is a good way of describing this. Because what does this firstborn son do to make him worthy of that inheritance? Nothing. He was just born. He didn't choose it. He was just born. He's a son and therefore he inherits this. It seems too good to be true. And sadly, that's how many people treat it. But Paul will have none of that. He will not abide that. So look at what he says. Well, let's read verse 3 again and then look at verse 4. But, but even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet, because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that we, they might bring us into slavery... To them we did not yield. In chapter 3, Paul is going to compare life under the old covenant, under the old covenant law, to life under a guardian, to not being, to having the full rights of sonship yet. He's going to compare that to a tutor that helps lead people to Christ. And now that Christ has come, and believers are now sons of God through faith in him. There's no longer need for that guardian. That's, that scaffolding can be taken down now. There's freedom from it. It has passed away. It is the old covenant. The greater thing has arrived. Moreover, as we think about the law, when it comes to this matter of justification, 
how we are made righteous before God, the law teaches us that the demand is perfection. If we want to try to attain righteousness, a righteous standing with God by law, then we have got to be perfect. You can't just add a little bit of law, like circumcision. You have to go the whole way and keep the entirety of the law perfect. This is Paul's own reasoning. You can read it in chapter 5, verse 3. He says, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. This is this distinction we talk about between law and gospel in some circles disparaged today as if it's some Greek dualism. It's not true. It is a, it is a, a distinction that is biblical. In fact, in chapter 3 again, verse 11, now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. Verse 12, but the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. That, that's what law is. It demands and it commands. It is not of faith. It is distinct from faith. There is a difference there. A distinction that needs to be upheld. If you want to try to attain righteousness, there's two ways to go about it. You can try it by law, in which case you're on the hook for all of it, including the moral aspects of the law. You want to just bring in circumcision. You just want to bring in baptism. You just want to bring in attending church so often, whatever it might be. Well, you can't just do that because if now you're going by a works principle and you're going to have to keep the entirety of the law perfect your entire life. This is why it becomes such a slavery if we go back that way. The alternative is a righteousness that is ours by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that is given to us as a gift of God's grace, Christ's righteousness credited to our account. We are fallen in Adam, and we have committed innumerable sins in ourselves. We stand no hope of being justified by law. Again, in chapter 3, verse 10, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. That's relying on works of the law in any sense for your justification before God. You're under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the law and do them. The law ultimately condemns. And it is Christ who frees us from this condemnation. He alone has obeyed God's law perfectly. And in so doing, he has earned salvation for his people. He has done this on behalf of all who believe in him. And this righteousness, this salvation is dispensed graciously by God. Received not by law, but by faith alone. The righteousness that comes by faith frees us from the curse of the law. It frees us from that absolute demand of perfection that leaves us doomed before a holy God. Because Christ has performed it for us. And we are in him. And we are declared righteous because of what he has done. And so as it pertains to our righteousness before God, law is of no use to us. And if anyone adds something to faith in how this justification and righteousness is received, then it puts us back under the entirety of the law. And this is what the Judaizers were doing. They may not have said they may not have been saying you have to keep the entirety of the law with absolute perfection. I would suggest to you they likely were not saying that. But this is the logic of their system. That This is what Paul is pointing out to us. If you want to go down this road of law keeping like circumcision, well, guess what? You're on the hook for all of it. That's what he's saying in chapter 3. So it cannot be. We have to stand our ground here. It might seem like a lot of argument 
over one little issue like circumcision, but it's vital to preserving the truth of the gospel. Paul speaks of these Judaizers as false brothers. They're not Christians. They're false brothers. And he has a category for Christians that he disagrees with. Remember in Philippians, there were men preaching the gospel, but they were doing it out of bad motives. And he says, what of it? Only that Christ is proclaimed. In that case, these men have bad motives, but they are preaching the gospel. And so Paul can rejoice even in that. But here... They're false brothers. They're secretly brought in. They're slipping in to spy out our freedom we have in Christ. There are those who, who cannot allow for a, a free salvation received by faith, who will not stand for a true and complete freedom from the law as an instrument of our salvation. The Judaizers were like that. They despised this freedom that Paul and the other Christians were enjoying. And many still do this today. It's way too easy that way, they'll say. Or it isn't fair. Some people have that attitude. I've worked my whole life at, you know, denying my flesh and, uh, you know, not doing what others around me did. And it was very hard and very difficult. And, and now someone wants to come in and just immediately enjoy, all, you know, the fullness of salvation. And people want to, to know you have to do these things First as well in order to really prove yourself. Many argue that this, this gospel will just encourage sinfulness and laziness if you preach such a freedom from the law. It's just what's going to end up happening if you preach this gospel. Well, everyone's just going to want to let sin abound so that grace may abound. That's what Paul was accused slanderously of teaching that very thing. Many still think this way. Many want to withhold assurance of salvation to Christians in the fear that if you're assured and have confidence in your salvation, it's going to kill your piety. And so they, they've got to leave some part of this whole equation to your effort and your work. Otherwise, you're just going to run headlong into further sin. We must create doubt so that Christians will continue to work at their sanctification. It's very common. There are those also who will affirm that there's an initial entry into Christianity that is by faith alone. But then you must get busy keeping yourself and doing enough good in order to stay in. They will split up justification into two different stages. You have an initial justification and a final one. Or an initial justification and a final salvation. You're justified initially, at least, by faith alone. But then in the final analysis, when you stand before God, it'll be what Christ has done for you, and so your faith in Him, and your faithfulness to keep this covenant. This blends, again, faith and works. It blends law and gospel together. There are all kinds of reasons why one might despise the freedom that comes from the gospel. And where works do come in and disrupt the freedom that is in Christ, it leads people back into slavery. Again, that slavery to the law. Paul says this was the end result and the goal of the Judaizers. They spied out freedom, the freedom of believers, so as to bring them into slavery and into subjection. They slipped in like spies in a foreign land, seeking to subjugate those citizens. This is how it works when the grace of the gospel is undermined and we slip works back in. It's seeking to enslave Christians again. And what's Paul's reaction to this? Verse 5. To them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Paul, again, is having none of this. Not even for a moment. Not even for an instant. Again, he, I, don't, this, again I don't think he went thinking, maybe I've got this all wrong. No, he, he knows what the gospel is. And he's prepared to defend that. 
And when it, as it pertains to these people slipping in, spying out their freedom, trying to bring them to subjection, he yields not even for a moment in order to preserve the truth of the gospel. That's what's at stake. If circumcision or any other work of the law is necessary to be justified, then we're back under slavery to the law, and it's not at all good news, because now we're on the hook for the whole of it. The gospel brings freedom from that burden, as it proclaims that sinners are justified by God's grace through faith alone in the Lord Jesus Christ because of what he has accomplished. And for any who fear, or it's not just fear, it could be legitimate questions, Paul does go on in the letter of Galatians to talk about how Christian freedom is not meant as a cover for evil or a cover for the flesh, but as a freedom to obey God freely as his graciously pardoned people. No longer as those who are seeking to earn the wage of eternal life and righteousness before God, but rather as his redeemed children. You see the great difference. Being under law as a covenant with God is to have to earn a wage before him. And we cannot do that. We are freed from that. We are God's sons through faith in Christ, period. And so our efforts to obey now are not efforts to establish a righteousness before God so that I can have confidence that I stand before him. No, that's all tied to what Christ has done, graciously given to you. And so we, can, we, we go about our lives living under a covenant of grace with God. So this is why when we are fail again and we are sinful again and we struggle with it, we can lift up our head and not just beat ourselves down into the dust and lay there. We look again to Christ. Are we under a legal relationship with God that we're seeking to earn a wage before him? Or are we graciously pardoned in Christ? It's the latter. We need to fight against this return to this legal understanding of our relation with God. And that's what the Judaizers are doing. That's what everyone does who would seek to make any of our works part of the instrument by which we are saved. If you want to add a little bit of faithfulness to how it is that we are to be able to stand on the last day, how much faithfulness is necessary? At what point can you say, aha, I've got enough faithfulness now of my own that like, you know, with what Christ has done, now I'm, I'm good to go. You won't find an answer to that. Not by those who espouse such teaching. You won't find an answer to that. And Paul tells us what the answer is. Really, you've got to be perfect always, forever, and never have messed up. I would encourage you to, to just embrace fully the freedom that there is in the gospel. Truly, truly grace is unmerited favor. And I would encourage you to do away with any false humility by which you insist on whipping yourself over all of your wrongs. Oh, I don't deserve, I don't deserve to be joyful today. I don't deserve to be happy today because look at me. I've sinned again, but I'm still struggling. Oh, it's just... I'll just remain down because I deserve to be. Believe that God justifies the ungodly on account of faith in Christ Jesus. I'm not saying pretend your sins are no big deal whatsoever, but look again to Christ who has satisfied God's wrath for that sin you're so upset about. Remember that you deal with God now as a son of God, by faith in Christ. You're not trying to make up for anything lacking. There's nothing lacking in that your standing before God is determined and settled by Christ. The moment you believe, it's no different 40 years later when you find yourself still battling with sin. The good news is, in Christ, you're justified by believing in him. There's rest here. There can be joy even as we fight with our own sinfulness. And don't let anyone put you back under the burden of the law for righteousness sake. 
If again, if you lack assurance, look again to the greatness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Often we fight with assurance because we're, we know that our repentance is so incomplete. Our sanctification is so dearly lacking. And so we struggle with assurance. And we have to look away from ourselves to that alien, external righteousness that's imputed to us, that righteousness that is Christ. That's primarily where assurance lies. Not because I've got it and I'm so faithful now or ever. Even on our best of weeks, we've still fallen short of the glory of God and probably miserably so. We ever only always stand justified before God on account of Christ. And our hope and trust is that God keeps his word. That he will not fail to save to the uttermost his people. John 8, 36, Jesus said, If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. There is much rejoicing to be had in being free in Christ from the law's tyranny and from the curse of the law. So of, of all freedoms, let us treasure and defend and proclaim the freedom that there is in Christ, the freeness of the gospel. And let us defend this wherever it might be undermined or come under attack whether it be from here or even, as Paul says earlier, from an angel in heaven. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for Christ, for sending in the fullness of time your Son, to be born under law, to redeem those of us who are cursed under the law. Father, I pray that you would lift our heads from our trials and struggles that we might rejoice. Father, you are merciful to us in Christ Jesus. And we thank you for this. Father, I pray that you would Free us from any ongoing sense of needing to earn righteousness before you in order to be able to stand before you. Father, help us to believe your word that very clearly teaches that you justify the ungodly through faith. Father, I pray that our pursuit of holiness would be a joy as your people, knowing that this is not something we're trying to establish in order to withstand your judgment. Father, when we sin, may we confess it quickly and boldly to you and carry on battling those sins. Father, we thank you so much for your word. For your mercies, we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.